My name is Anthony Capazzoli. I am the host of the Dismantle Life podcast and I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict after nearly 40 years of addiction. I've been clean and sober for nearly four years and work hard to help others find recovery. Join me each episode to learn from my sober superhero guests and how they went from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of recovery. Dismantled Life can be found on Digitent Podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's so great to have you on, Peg, and I'm excited to hear your story and all about your great book and your sobriety and how you help people like me. You know, I'm an alcoholic and a cocaine addict. I've recovered about four years. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And never been better, never been happier. I do the work every day, proud to do the work every day. The Dismantle Life podcast is about that, just bringing us together so that we all know that there's hope, that there's people just like us that we can rely on to give us strength to get through a tough day or a tough year, a tough whatever. Yeah. Thank you for doing this kind of work because like you said, our stories are so important. I mean, sometimes they're the only thing we can hang on to. That's right. Everything else seems upside down and you hear someone's story and you think, okay, it's not as bad as I think it is, or if this person can do it, I can do it. So thanks for helping to multiply the stories out there in the universe for people. Maybe we should start with a little bit about who you are for the listeners, and then a little bit about the wonderful book that you've wrote, and then we can dive into some detail about that in your story. It'd be great. Sure. Um, So my name is Peg O'Connor, and I'm both a philosopher and recovering alcoholic. I've been sober for a good long time, and I've always thought that my study of philosophy helped me to get and stay sober because I was... I had the framework, I had the concepts for asking about the big meaning of life questions, like who am I, why am I here? How am I gonna contribute to the world? What's my moral character? What are my moral principles and non-negotiables? And when I was drinking, I didn't like the answers I was giving myself. I didn't like how I was in the world. And I thought that I was kind of wasting my opportunities. And so for me to have the opportunity to do this kind of work, to to bring philosophy to people who have perhaps never had a philosophy class in their life or who took one philosophy class and people either loved it or they hated it. There's never (laughs) any middle ground there. So it's, it's kind of my, I would say, vocation at this point to try to make available to people many of the great gifts of philosophy. You know, we've been asking the big questions about the meaning of life and purpose longer than any other discipline. So there's a lot there to mine. And I get to do that with my students and I get to do that in my writing. I get to do it in a, a venue of a podcast like this. So, you know, I'm a philosopher, I'm an alcoholic, and I am just profoundly grateful for both of those things. I am grateful that I hit rock bottom so hard because of where it led me. And the weird thing sometimes to explain to people that are struggling, I'll say an active addiction for lack of a better way to frame it. They, they look at me like I'm, like I'm crazy when I say that. I'm like, look, the best thing that's happening to you right now is your active addiction. You can use that when you hit rock bottom as a wonderful springboard into who you should be. A wonderful life. My podcast is about stories from the darkness of addiction into the summit of sobriety. And I say that, mm-hmm. you know, the next day after you decide and you commit to being sober and put in the work, the work becomes a real joy. And then you, I'm grateful for it every day. And I think about it and I think about the nasty, nitty, gross bits too, just to make sure that it stays fresh in my mind's eye and in my emotional layer so that I don't forget, I use it as a positive springboard. And I love the combination of philosophy and sobriety. Uh, I'm dying to hear about how you've intertwined the two because I'm a classical history buff, Iliad, you know, Odyssey, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) So I'm a big, big fan of Renaissance, uh, all of that. So that's, this rings a very nice chord for me. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And I'm, I'm really, grateful to hear you say that you're a grateful addict because many people may say oh I'm a grateful alcoholic they're grateful for the recovery I'm grateful like you for the malady for the problem I wouldn't be the person that I am I wouldn't have the kind of empathy that I have I wouldn't have the kind of care and concern for others and for myself if I hadn't really 
sunk to some pretty significant depths. Now, I'm someone who, who is a little wary of the concept of, of rock bottom. You know, I'm a little wary of that concept because it makes it seem as if there's some objective point that everyone must hit in order to make these kinds of life-altering, life-affirming kinds of changes. And, and I think that's dangerous because some people might say, well, I haven't lost my partner. I haven't lost my wife. I haven't lost my dog. I still got my job. I can't be an alcoholic or an addict because, oh, you got to lose all those things to be one. And, right. and, and I think, you know, so William James, so that's sort of what the topic of this book, Higher and Friendly Powers, is uh, about. He said that he's got this concept called misery threshold. Each of us has a point at which we can no longer tolerate pain. And we think about pain thresholds all the time with, with physical pain. And there are some people who, with a hangnail, are going to be running for the Advil bottle. And you've got other people whose arm can be severely broken. And they'll say, oh, you know, this little thing. And James <laughs> argues that, that people have a misery threshold with respect to the kind of existential, psychological suffering that they can tolerate. And he says, when you reach that misery threshold, you'll say enough. And not wanting to suffer will be a source of motivation. It'll provide a reason why you want to start doing things differently. Because nobody ever really wants to find out just how much pain or trauma they can take right? We yeah. oftentimes ask that question, I don't know how much more I can take. None of us really want to find out. But I think many of us do find out in the trajectory of our addiction. And that helps us to figure out what we need to do to put our addiction into remission or be yeah. in recovery. I mean, whatever kind of language you want to use for that. But all of that is just crucial self-knowledge. And that's another piece of philosophy. Mm. Self-knowledge is a form of knowledge that a lot of people don't take seriously. Like we're concerned scientific knowledge. You know, we want to know what's going on with the climate. We want to know what's happening right. in the economy. And I'm always thinking, well, I better know what's going on, not just inside of me, but with me. I need to know what's going on with me in relation to others. And if, if I am a mystery, if I am opaque to myself, I'm probably going to get into a boatload of trouble. And I would say when I was active in my addiction, I didn't know myself or I didn't want to know the self that I thought that I was. And so addiction in many ways is losing oneself, but not really even recognizing it until it's really late if that makes any sense it makes perfect sense i i love what you said about the box of what an alcoholic looks like in terms of rock bottom where i i'm not a huge fan of social media but i do like to use it to support people in recovery and people trying to find a path to recovery and some of my favorite posts look at that kind of spectrum a little bit where they'll have an image of uh quote unquote and i'm just using this as a stereotypical example so please anyone listening understand I, i'm not typographing anyone, but I'm saying though a bum with a, a bottle of wine and a paper bag kind of concept with dirty clothes in an alley, like that's people's concept of what an alcoholic is. And then right next to it, it also had underneath alcoholic and it was a soccer mom or it was a doctor or it was a lawyer or it was insert anything, clean cut, whatever that might mean, uh, professional, has a nice car, nice home, all of those things, all the trappings. And I would argue that if you're going to put a percentage on, I'd say 99% of alcoholics fit into a box that they're socially accepted. They look, quote unquote, again, normal. And forgive me for that. But it, that's the concept, not the, the wino with the paper bag. And I think that it's great to say it's a good difference between rock bottom and how much you could take. Because for me, because I'm stubborn, I had to hit rock bottom a couple of times, but that was for me. And I tell people that you don't have to necessarily come crash landing in. It, it could be a soft landing or you could just decide one day that I've had enough of this. So I love that idea that, that, you're, that you've talked about that in that way, because it's a very important concept. Yeah, it, and it's, it's unique to each person, you know, how much suffering you can take. And I think oftentimes one of the perversities is that the more you suffer, the more you can take. 
and then at right. some point it is a matter of saying, but I don't want to take it anymore. I mean, it's an act of will. It's an act of saying, wait a minute, I've got some kind of self-worth here that means I'm worth fighting for. And, and I think one of the tragedies of real severe addiction is that people stop seeing themselves as having any worth, as being worthy of fighting for themselves or to have others try to fight for them. And, and I think that kind of, that resignation, that, that fatalism is, is so dangerous and so debilitating. Yes, addictions are awful and addictions can be mild, they can be moderate, they can be severe. If we take the language of the American Psychiatric Association, we sure. don't even talk about addiction, right? We talk about substance use disorders. Right. On the one hand, that seems accurate. You know, it's yes about the substance, but it's also about each of us as individuals, right? You, you can't just say addiction is a consequence of the substance. Addiction is a consequence of the substance substance in conjunction with all of our actions and our choices and our hopes and our aspirations and our frustrations, our trauma, you know, kind of environmental considerations with trauma and everything. So yes, these things can be mild, moderate, and severe. And at some point, though, I think each individual does have to make a choice that their life is worth living. They have Great. to act as if it's worth living. And then maybe that belief helps to make it be true that their life is worth living. But I think a lot of times people with severe addictions in some ways kind of have to hitchhike on other people believing in them. Because they can't generate that belief for themselves yet because they know how colossally they have screwed up and hurt people and squandered opportunities. I mean, if addicts are very good at one thing, we're very good at compiling all the ways that we messed up. It's much harder for us, even later in recovery, right. to kind of balance the ledger to say, well, and there are some good qualities to me. I mean, that just feels like, ooh. Yeah. I think a, a, big port, a big part of doing the work in getting sober is managing your ego and putting your ego in check where you're no longer defending yourself and all the bullshit that you believed or told yourself through the years, which drove you to drink and the drugs and that it's okay because of this or it's a, whatever it might be. And when you, the ego check is a very big deal. You have to come to terms with, I am an alcoholic. I am an addict, but that doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. That just means that I'm an alcoholic and I'm an addict. You can move forward from there and being okay with your past, leaving it there, learning from it, building on it and moving forward in a positive way, I think makes us superheroes. I call it being a sober superhero because there is an art to this in terms of you have to do the work. You have to believe in yourself. You have to find positive resources. You, I, the higher power concept. You, I believe that it takes a village to recover. It's not just a, a one and done thing by a person. I think you have to find a community to support you. And all of that stuff for it to work, a lot of it, in my opinion, hinges on the ego being in control. You have to say, I, I can't do this. I have failed. And I mean that in real terms. You, you can't be okay with being an addict or an alcoholic. You have to say enough is enough and move forward from there. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you can't win. You have to teach yourself positive routines. And instead of a bad day or a celebration, reaching for the bottle or, or the drugs, you, you go do a workout, you take a walk, you go watch a movie with your kids. It's, I think, not a medical doctor, I'm just someone who's doing the work as an addict and alcoholic, but that's what I've learned through all the wonderful people that I've been blessed with through my recovery is that, you know, some days are good, some days are bad, but you have to string the days together in a positive way. I think that's right. I mean, so being in recovery isn't just saying no to the substances or the behaviors. I mean, that's a, a necessary condition certainly say with Alcoholics Anonymous or other abstinence-based programs. You know, when you get to harm reduction, I think you have to change the terms of that discussion. So, so they're saying no to using things in harmful, abusive, addictive, dependent kinds of ways, but there's got to be something positive. There has to be a saying yes to something. Because if you always are just saying no, 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 I think a lot of us are gonna, oh gosh, what's the word I want? Skid into resentment. Like you're yeah. going to start feeling deprived. You're going to start feeling resented. Why can't I 
other people can, you know, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. But if, 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 if you're stuck in that kind of deprivation mode, I think you're going to be miserable. Yeah. If you're able to say yes, if you've got positive visions, if you have aspirations, if you have goals, if you have hopes that can be met, not by magic or not by trying to force the world to meet your image of it, but kind of reasonable hope, then that's exactly what I think saves us. That's the difference between being abstinent and being in recovery or being sober and living flourishing in ways that we humans are capable of, of doing. I mean, so yes, abstinence or, you know, vastly reducing harm and having the positive goals that you have as your compass, right? They keep you oriented. It helps you to keep your eyes on the prize. And in doing that, I think it teaches us or we learn or we train ourselves to believe that we will be okay come what may. Yeah, I know that, you know, we may not recognize what that okay might look like. We might be somewhat horrified by it, but to be able to say, I know I'll be okay. So what I say about myself is, I know I won't always land on my feet. I know sometimes I will land flat on my ass if I can say that on a podcast. <laughs> you may. But what I know is I will somehow get back up. And yeah. it may be, yep, I've, I've got a lot of grit and will, but I also have plenty of people around who are going to put out the hand and help me to get back up on my feet. So yeah. I'm not going to nail the landing. I might not land on my feet. I may not flat on my ass, but I'm getting up. And I'm going to try to get up and I'm going to recognize that isn't just all my own. Like you said, it's not all my own achievement. There are plenty of people who are helping me. And I think that's one of the, one of the important things with mutual help groups, people trying to be sober, whether it's AA, women in sobriety, life ring, rational recovery, craft, that it's about saying that our sobriety isn't an individual achievement. I think that a large part of this is reaching out to people that you don't know and going to, and I use AA as the example, but going to a meeting and, and finding people like you that you don't know, they can support you. And this is the important part, I think, that's from a recovery perspective. You need people that know your bullshit because they have the same bullshit. <laughs> you know, because you've been snowing people for years. Most, most of my life, people had no idea how addicted I actually was. And I, I could you know, pull the wool over their eyes as it were. And I think it's important to go around people that are going to call you out and support you in a positive way. Not, not make you a fool, but say, look, this is what you're doing. This is what you're struggling with. Not tell you how to solve it, but let you know that it's a problem that can be solved. And this is what we recommend. And, and that is the beauty. And what I've learned in recovery is that, you know, I took, I, I took the, you know, the short route, every chance I could, I, I, I could, I, I always took the easy way. I never put the work in. I always, you know, served myself, let's get to the party sooner, let's stay at the party longer, whatever it was, as an example. And I've learned that that doesn't equal joy. That just means I'm an alcoholic and an addict. I I like my life now because it's routine-based. It's based on a positive foundation through not only my family, but my sobriety and recovery. But I get up at the same time, seven days a week. I go work out five or six days a week at 6 a.m. It's just an example. And I love the routine and the positive process and I've come to terms with being okay with myself in a quiet space again. I don't need throngs of people who I don't know yelling my name because I'm buying drinks that day kind of thing. And those are some lessons that I've learned that have been wonderful. Like I'm quite all right being either extrovert in a fun way, sobriety, or an introvert just quietly reading my book, which I love to do. I've gotten back to a lot of basics that I've dismissed because the drugs and alcohol took over and wouldn't give me any peace. So... Yeah, and that really resonates with this notion of knowing how to belong to yourself. So when we're active in our addictions, I think I'll just I'll just say me. Yeah, I belong to the alcohol, or if I could get cocaine, yay, even better. I'm happily belong to that. Or I belong to 
what other people thought I should be, other people's opinions of me, or how I wanted to be perceived by others. Like, oh, hey, there's Peg. She's really fun. You want her at your party? Because you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, particularly as a teenager. So, you know, I had the good fortune of starting to go gray. So you can't see me, people listening to this. Anthony can. And I'm white haired. I started going gray when I was 16. So I never get carded. You know, I can go to any liquor store and buy whatever I want. I mean, that that was great. And I kind of got off on that. You know, like, hey, we got to get pet because she's <laughs> And she's really fun until she yeah. gets mopey and maudlin because she drinks too much. But we'll just bypass that. But when we're, when we're, when we're active, we belong to everyone or everything but our own selves. And so listen to you talk about, mm. you come to know yourself, you know your priorities, you know what matters, you know what you like to do, you know what you need to do to stay grounded, to stay focused. In recovery, we come to belong to ourselves. And, and that to me is just such a wonderful way of thinking about how we trade away, we give away, we squander so much of ourselves yeah. in so many ways, not just in addiction, but we're talking about addiction here. And what does it mean to belong to ourselves, to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to be more intentional in tending to my moral character. You know, I'd say there's nothing more important than a person's moral character. And we don't pay enough attention to it until, oh boy, we get into a lot of trouble. But so uh, wake up every day and say, okay, who do I want to be? How do I want to be? How do I, how do I want to regard myself? You know, and it isn't just, you know, ticking and balancing on right. a ledger, but it's really saying, this is who I am in this world with these people, with these concerns and these commitments. Am I doing my part? Am I, and, but more than that, am I getting to do my part? I get to do this work. I get to show up in the world in these kinds of ways. And what an honor and what good fortune that is coming from hard work, coming from perhaps bad starting points, like nobody wants, sets out to be an addict or particularly wants this opportunity, but it's our opportunity and we take it and we grab it. I read a really interesting quote today that sobriety has taught me to be a friend to myself, which I thought was so wonderful. It's kind of a God wink moment for me here because what that's you're talking about exactly that, where the opportunity to get to know yourself, you're talking in terms of like a moral code or moral fiber. And I think it's the same thing in this conversation where you get to think about that and live according to those moral, I'm going to say rules, but your, your mores and, and rules in that case. And I love that. I got to be, a, I get to be a friend to myself finally after 51 years, it took 47 years or so to do that. And it's finally like so nice. It is. And, and the idea of being your own best friend comes from the philosopher Aristotle around 350 BCE, who argued that the right model of self-love is being your own best friend because you have the care and concern for virtue and moral character. And the final goal is flourishing. So living, living morally living connected to the right types of people. And we all know this, that your friends can make you better and your friends can also pull you down faster than anything else. And so if you think about being your own best friend, you can ask yourself, am I making myself a better person or am I getting in my own way? Yeah. Again, self-knowledge, knowing yourself, we get to do this. You know, I, I don't know if I really do feel this way, but I'll say it. I kind of feel bad for people who don't have the opportunity to really come to know themselves in some kind of way because yeah. they get so busy. Oh, here are my career goals. Here's what I understand success to be. You know, you've got these benchmarks. I'm going to get this degree. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have this many kids at this right. time in my life. And, and they just kind of go through life on autopilot. And for me, there's nothing more tragic than being on autopilot because on one accounting, you can have everything going for you. You've hit all your benchmarks. And on the other hand, it's like the lights are on, but you're not home. It's like, who's living your life? If not you in an intentional kind of way. So the philosopher Kierkegaard, so Danish, so melancholic, writing in the 1850s, said that happiness is despair's greatest hiding place. And by that, he meant, if you just buy into all of the 
social messaging about what it means to be happy, if you just buy into a culture's this what success means, you can be absolutely miserable and in despair in a kind of great spiritual imbalance and not even know it because you'll talk yourself out of it by saying, well, I've got the perfect wife. I've got the healthy kids. I've got the good job, you know, all these sorts of things. And Kierkegaard is saying, but you might be in this incredible kind of despair. And when you know it, you, when you realize it, you could be devastated by it. And, and I think that that's, you know, ah, profoundly disorienting. Wait, I can be in despair, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy because I think a lot of people tell themselves, well, I've got all these things. I'm supposed to be happy. And they kind of bootstrap themselves into believing that they're happy and they're not. Brilliantly stated, because I think that people hide their happiness in materialism and conspicuous consumption very often. And then that's where I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. I've got this nice car. I take these nice vacations. I've got all this great stuff. I've got whatever it might be, 800 pairs of shoes or pants, who cares? And they, they dismiss the fact that they're, they're not happy. And that, and the, the materialism and the conspicuous consumption is just a band-aid for a very big and deeper problem that, you know, often leads to, let's have three bottles of wine every dinner. Like that's, they dismiss that because, oh, it's expensive wine. We must be okay. You're not okay. Well, right. We're, we're connoisseurs. We don't, we don't guzzle the wine. We're connoisseurs. Oh, are you? Now there's a hair ready to be split seven times. You know, clearly. But, but I think, you know, the pursuit of all the material goods and the success, you know, mask the fact that the important immaterial goods are missing social connection, you know, responsibility, a sense of happiness, connection to others or to causes and, and commitments. I mean, I think people tend to get it wrong about what really can ground them or tether them in good kinds of ways. That's 100%. I agree with you. And I, I feel like what's, what's magical is I find the best lives are the simple lives. Um, maybe St. Francis kind of concept, maybe maybe not overtly Franciscan, but you know what I mean? Where it's a simple term, simple life, uh, and just enjoy yourself. Like happiness comes from within. It really does. And it's, it's a matter of being okay with the skin that you're in. And I am now. It took a long, long time to get here because I was the person chasing the nice car and the bigger house and this and that. And once I dismissed all that and got grounded, uh, by getting into recovery, I realized that my happiness has always been here. It's just been drowned in alcohol and, and powdered with cocaine. And it's tragically bad for me. And I, I couldn't be happier where I am today. See, and this is philosophy. And this is, I, I have always believed that addicts are some of the most philosophical people I have ever met. And given the opportunity to kind of scratch the surface with some people, you know they're thinking about these questions and they want to talk about the, the answers, the questions, the, the kind of puzzles of it all because it, it, it can be so life-affirming. When did we become so afraid to affirm life with ideas as opposed to affirming life with material possessions? I mean, it's just, it's a I tragedy that, that we don't in, teach children, for example how to think philosophically, to ask questions about meaning and value, which is why I love hearing that your son and you sell bread together. I mean, you've got this whole set of practices where you're making not just memories, you're making meaning and instilling values, making connections and, and seeing relationships between short-term goals and long-term goals and, and all those sorts of things, all these life skills or essential arts of personhood that we don't pay enough attention to until it's oftentimes really late in our lives. And we think, oh my gosh, what have I been missing? I'd like to learn a little bit more about your book, if you don't mind, and have you share more about that and where people can find it and what they're going to learn from reading it. All that and more. So the title of the book is Higher and Friendly Powers, plural, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. So I will say I was someone who tried going to AA when I was 19 and it just was not a good fit. College students, 
what's all this business about higher power and surrendering and powerless? You know, as a young person, that wasn't language that worked for me. And as an older person, it turned out it wasn't language that was working for me. And I wondered about the concept of, of higher power. And I had been reading... Well, I mean, it's, it's in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's in the big book in the second appendix um, where Bill Wilson makes reference to William James, who was an American philosopher and psychologist who lived 1842 to 1910. And I thought, huh. And so then I did a little more digging and Bill Wilson regarded William James as a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, but I'm a little surprised by this notion of higher power that's an AA because that seems like it would be different from what I knew about William James from my study of philosophy, who was a committed pragmatist who wanted to have a far more expansive and inclusive notion of higher powers. And he referred to them as higher and friendly powers. So my interest was piqued. So I decided to go back to the book that Bill Wilson read when he was sobering up, you know, so if you don't know the story of, of Bill Wilson, so 1934, he, he is, um, he's a failed businessman. It's in the depression. He's living with his wife's family. I mean, the wheels have come off his bus. He regards himself as an incurable alcoholic, but he's able to check into, they used to call him the asylum for the inebriates. So the town's hospital in New York City was where people went to dry out. And he was probably going through withdrawal and had severe DTs. And at the time, the treatment called for the use of belladonna, which can cause hallucinations. So Bill Wilson is drying out and he's you know, saying, if there is a God, let him show himself now. I will do anything, anything to remove this desire to drink. And then suddenly the room was filled with spirits and his desire to drink was lifted and he felt like a free man. So of course, you know, hours later, he's thinking, am I going crazy? And one of his good friends, Ebby Thacker, who was someone else who drank like he did and who had stopped drinking, came to visit him and brought him William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. And so Bill Wilson read that book several times. And it was a book that other early members of AA had read, including Dr. Bob. And it was popular in the Oxford group, which was kind of a it's not quite accurate to say a precursor to AA, but it was a mutual help group for men who were trying to stop drinking. And they had all read varieties of religious experience. So I decided to take a very deep dive into that book because what I knew about William James was he was someone who suffered greatly um, from various kinds of physical and emotional ills. And I knew that he knew suffering from the inside. And the topic of the book is about spiritual experiences and he uses spiritual in a very broad kind of way. He said, I'm not interested in religions and their dogmas, you know, whether, say, in Catholicism, transubstantiation, whether the Eucharist is literally the body of Christ or the Lutherans who say, oh, no, 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 it's not literally, it's metaphorically, it's a standard. I was raised Catholic, so, you know, I'm like, transubstantiation. Um, and he said, and, and James said, I'm not interested in that. I want to look at people for whom the spiritual impulses burn like an acute fever. And so it is this wonderful long book about people who have these profound spiritual experiences or conversions. And three of the recurring stories that William James deals with are men who are active alcoholics, fall down drunks the worst end of what we'd now say the substance use disorder. And he chronicles their journeys. He talks about their spiritual experiences. And what he says is that really what someone needs to have a conversion is just something higher than their own embattled little self. And we Christians will call that God. But he cites examples from Islam, from Buddhism, from secular humanists like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. And he said, all of these are higher and friendly powers. They come with this sense of expansiveness and that's all you need. So when Bill W. read Varieties, 
He took higher power and equated it with God and made it seem as if God is going to do these things for you. He's going to remove your defects of character. And if you follow God's will, everything will be okay. And you only need to pray for knowledge of his will for you and the power to carry it out. And so this book, in many ways, is an attempt to be more Jamesian, to be more inclusive and expansive in saying that you don't need to believe in a God to undergo a significant spiritual conversion away from active addiction to a life in recovery, which James talks about um, the fruits of the spiritual tree. So when you become someone for whom spiritual impulses burn most brightly, or they are, listen to this phrase from 1902, your habitual center of personal energy. When your habitual center of personal energy are these spiritual impulses that make you want to reach out to other people, reach out to the world, to reach out to something that is more expansive, even if you can't name it, understand it, you feel a kind of friendly continuity with something that is bigger than you. He says, anything larger will do to take the next step. So that could have been the subtitle for this book. Anything larger, to, anything larger will do to take the next step. So the point of this book is to try to thread a very uh, tiny eye and a tiny needle a book that would be interesting to people who are advocates of AA for whom God works as a higher power and people who have not found a home in AA because they felt as if they didn't subscribe to the God language, that there was nothing there to offer. So to kind of, as I said, rehabilitate, expand, return that notion of higher and friendly powers into the into the discussion about addiction and recovery might make AA more palatable to people. Or reading this, I hope would help people to see ways that there are, no, to see that there are multiple ways out of addiction. If there's gotta be a kind of plurality of ways out of addiction, that there is no one right, true, best way to recover. Each person's addiction is unique to them. The reasons why they start to use, the reasons why they start to use particular kinds of drugs, continue to use all of that. There may be some common denominators, but at the end of the day, each person has to make their own choice. They have to be willing. They have to have a kind of faith. Faith not in a God doing something for you, but this notion of faith is a willingness to live on possibility, a willingness to act where the results are not guaranteed in advance. That's all faith is, is a kind of willingness. And faith pervades all aspects of our life. And so James wrote this very powerful essay, Is Life Worth Living? And he was addressing it to a group of college students who were, con you know, and he was someone who, as I said, really struggled mentally. He suffered from what we probably now call severe clinical depression as a very young man. And he seriously contemplated suicide. And he said, this is a living question for many people. This is a battle. Life is a battle. And some people engage this question every day. Should I live today or should I kill myself? And he says, if you're willing to act on the belief that maybe just maybe your life is worth living, that belief will help to make the fact that your life is worth living. And I think that's profound because I think we who have been addicted, who, who are addicted, we live that dilemma just about every day. Shall I live or shall I die? And if you decide you want to live, the question is, well, how are you going to do it? Because you are going to need and want for it to be different from how you've been living now. You might say that it wasn't really living. I was barely scraping by or I was so, you know, much in a chemical haze that I, I couldn't live. And he really hoped that people would choose to live. And he understood himself to have made a very conscious decision to live when he was a young man in the 1870s, after the Civil War, in which he didn't serve, but his two brothers did, and he felt guilty about that. He made a very intentional decision to believe in free will, that he had a choice 
to make and that he could make that choice, that it was not determined, his fate was not determined, that he could act and he could act differently. And that was an important turning point for him. So this book, my book, I hope just makes available William James as a wonderful guide not just to suffering. I mean, he's got these chapters called the six souls and he talks about divided cells. I mean, extreme anguish and angst, but he also talks about healthy-minded people or people who are able to, again, with spiritual impulses burning at their center, live a very joyful kind of life. Not that it's always perfect, but there's a kind of stability. There's a kind of equilibrium there that the world doesn't have to be a hostile, alienating kind of place that you can find your own place in it. And so William James, for me, is, is one of the foremost philosophers in the history of philosophy. And, you know, I don't think he's taken as seriously as he should be in philosophy. And I think in psychology, this is the man who founded the academic discipline of psychology at Harvard University. And his view on things has now been completely supplanted by neuroscience. And James was a student of human nature, and he was so afraid of the ways in which science might domineer all ways of knowing, such that, you know, his term was medical materialism, but we now talk about it as reductionism. Oh, people are just these physical machines with brains. No, we're persons in complexities and relationships and we're persons who have addictions. We aren't addictions, we're persons who have them. And so it's just a way to try to bring James back into the discussion of addiction and recovery because he has so much to offer. We forget in recovery that we need to remain nimble and flexible. That I, I think if addiction is a kind of habit, which I think it is, I think recovery is another kind of habit. We might say, well, that's a bad habit versus healthy habit. But healthy habits can become a little maladaptive as well. So, for example, if you come to think that, well, AA or Women for Sobriety or working with my minister is the only way to do it, you become rigid in a kind of way. And I think that invites kind of trouble because you might be saying, well, I'm going to all my meetings and I'm doing everything. Therefore, nothing can go wrong. You're like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly when something is going to go wrong. So, you know, I think rigidity is the enemy in recovery. I mean, I think there's something important about routines, all of that. But when something becomes overly rigid, I think that is a real source, a real possibility of starting to go off the rail again. We need to, we need flexibility. You know, stability, stability is a matter of flexibility, not always rigidity. And I think we forget that. So to try different things, to try different, you know, means, methods, or treatments, being in recovery, I think is absolutely vital. And, and I think that's a good takeaway message from William James, the kind of plurality. There is no one right one. Because if you think there is one right one and you're doing it and then it doesn't work, you're not going to blame the program. You're going to blame yourself. And then you get into that loop of you know, self-abnegation, self-hatred. Oh, look, you always were a colossal screw up and you just proved it again. You had a little bit, you had a little bit of a pause and you're being a screw up, but oh, look, your true type always comes right back out. And I think that is so dangerous, so dangerous. You can't, you've got to learn to, to be okay not letting people's opinion get to you. And that takes a little bit of work too. Like not yeah. just- not just getting up and dusting yourself off and keeping going, but one of the things that I've, it's taken a long time in recovery to be okay, not having everybody like me, to be okay with somebody not being happy with me. Because at the end of the day, I used to live and die for that. It, I wasn't good or happy unless you liked me or you were happy with me. Or And I've learned that I don't give a shit what anybody thinks. Uh, as long as I'm doing the right thing and I'm putting the work in the right way, by my definition. Um, and that doesn't mean that you can be mean or rude to people. It's quite the opposite, really. You can be very nice and it's okay saying no politely. 
Um, it's okay saying, no, that I don't have time for that, or I don't want to do that, or I'm not going to do mm-hmm. it because I don't like doing that. <laughs> whatever it is, it's taking a long time because I would just, I would do whatever I had to do to make others happy. And I forgot about myself. I was no longer a friend to myself, as we mentioned earlier in our discussion. And that takes quite a bit of practice. And then to be comfortable with your saying no or having someone not be happy with you. Sitting in your own skin and knowing that takes time and it does take work. Um, I'm still working very hard at getting better at it, but it's one of those things. As we all are, right? I mean, we are works in progress. I think for me, one of the greatest gifts of recovery is getting better with being wrong or making mistakes. So as a young person in active addiction, anytime I made a mistake, or I was wrong. Yeah. It was always a referendum on my moral character or my moral worth. See, I really am a horrible person that I've done these sorts of things. And in recovery to be able to say, I made a mistake. I was wrong to not just offer an apology, which can be, you know, a verbal move that doesn't really do any, no basis to it, but, but to engage in genuine moral repair, to say that I have hurt or harmed or wronged someone, I need to fix it. And I need to do better in the future. I think that's one of the greatest gifts. And to, to, to own your mistakes, to not hold yourself to standards of perfectionism, because I think perfectionism is one of the most devious and diabolical forms of self-deception there is because that's always going to give you opportunity to not just nail yourself to the cross, but, you know, get out the staple gun or the nail gun, right. To, to get on the cross that to be able to say, I screwed up and I hope you will forgive me at some point. And, and I think, you know, notions of forgiveness from others and self-forgiveness So I'll just out myself as someone who still struggles with self-forgiveness. And I think that's, that's, I always refer to the the selves in philosophy. So self-love, self-knowledge, self-forgiveness, they kind of belong on the island of misfit toys in the sense that they don't fit into the neat paradigms. Well, clearly knowledge looks like this and love looks like this of another. And forgiveness is when one person says, yes, you know, I will accept your apology. When you're talking about what you do to yourself, it always looks weird. But I think one of the greatest struggles for me, and and I don't there there may be a gender dimension to this, is is self forgiveness, and and I've been puzzling over why is it so hard for some of us to forgive ourselves for things that we did decades ago. That why do we hold on to them? I mean, why do we kind of hoard these? you know, perhaps objectively bad things that we did or, you know, lunk-headed mistakes we made. Why do we, I don't know, I hate the verb curate, but I'm going to use it here. Why do we curate our past mistakes and our screw-ups? And I think it's in part because we always kind of have our eye on that person that we used to be. And I think we're always afraid of going back. And I think maybe there's something a little good in that, but I also worry about it. So I, I don't know. What do you think? I agree with you. I, I, so I, for me, I have two ways to remember things. If they're good things, I just remember them mentally, sometimes emotionally. If they're bad things that I've done or said, I remember them not only mentally, but I have an acute emotional reaction to them. If I think about something I did or something I said in the past and I'm embarrassed today, like I was then. And I think, my God, I can't believe I did that. That person doesn't like me. I'm a fool. I'm an idiot. And what I used to do is use that to justify the drinking and the drugging. And it was a way for me as a step or like a ladder to justify reaching for the bottle or the, 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 the drugs. And I had to learn to be okay with the fact that things happen. You're not always going to be right. And I tie that to perfectionism and that concept because once I learned that I am fallible, that I do make mistakes and it's okay, I'm still a good person. And quite frankly, the person that I may have spoken 
to in a bad way or something I was embarrassed about. I 99.9999% of the time, that person has no idea. If you mention it back yes. and said to them, they'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about because it doesn't mean anything. You, I attached all this emotional charge to it. Um, I'm excluding trauma in this, but something I said or something I did, I couldn't believe I did that. I said that I posted this on Twitter, whatever. Once I realized that it's okay to make mistakes, as long as they're not done with intention, meaning it was an honest mistake. You know, I didn't intentionally reach out to hurt someone or say something to right. harm someone. Then I'm okay with it. it. It takes a while though, but I still get those. And I still have to work hard. I talked to my sponsor um, about this a lot, about how to not just forgive myself, but to be okay with who I am. It's just something you said or something you did. And it's just a silly little thing. And I put so much onto it. And it, it's like you said, it's my cross to bear. And that is my that is my cross to bear. And I used to use it as a justification for the drinking sure. and the drugging. And then I would ponder and seethe over those things in my drunken stupor, thinking about it over and over from every possible angle. And now I've let it all go and just think, yeah, it's just something that happened. You're in, the rumina- you're in the ruminatrix. You yeah. entered the ruminatrix. Oh, get me <laughs> yeah. out of here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, well, this has been a delightful conversation for me. This I, has been. I have enjoyed myself tremendously and I enjoy every one of my episodes, but this is, this really uh, tickled my soul in a very wonderful way because uh, meeting someone like you, who also, I have an affinity for philosophy. I'm not a philosopher, um, but you don't have to put that qualifier on there. I think we're all philosophers. If we're asking these kinds of questions, I mean, there's no great cachet in being a philosopher. Well, Anthony, thanks for having me on. I mean, what, what a total, total blast. So I will say Higher and Friendly Powers will be out uh, August 15th of 2022. And it's just going up on Amazon now. You should be able to pre-order it. And um, here comes my plug. I also have a website. They told me I had to have a website. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. I'm not the kind of person to have a website, but it's (laughs) pegoconnorauthor.com. And uh, there's a information about the book and some other writings that I do. And, you know, I just, I'm always happy to hear from people. I love it when people email me or contact me like, Hey, I just read something of yours. I disagree with you. Or you're like, Whoa, that's really kind of interesting. I mean, I just love this kind of engagement and I wish there were more opportunities for people to do this. Or I wish that people took advantage of the opportunities that we have to, to, to do this. For all the listeners links for, Uh, Peg's website, access to the page on Amazon to buy the book and all other resources will be available in the show notes. So you can click and find everything. Dr. Peg O'Connor right there. Uh, And Peg, it has been an absolute joy to get to know you and have you on the show. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. Thank you for the opportunity.